Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us so beautifully. It's wonderful to hear you, hear your voices lifted in worship. And next week, I'm going to lean into a little bit in this series, uh, why do we sing? Why do we do that? Um, but we'll get to that next week, and we'll just say, it was beautiful to hear your voices lifted in worship today, and trust that that is a reflection of our hearts also lifted to the Lord. So uh, we talked in the, in the uh, announcement time, Dave was leading us and mentioned about the extreme baptisms in December, which we don't actually have planned, um, in case you were wondering. Uh, but it reminded me of a mission trip that I was on in Peru, and some of our students that were there that had not been baptized that said, I want to get baptized in the Pacific Ocean. And so we went out to the Pacific Ocean, and our translator, who was a pastor, said, we have, uh, you got baptized. You were one of the kids that got baptized there. Yeah, Emily was. Uh, and so we go out there, and, and uh, Marco is our translator, and, and he says, yeah, we, we baptize people here all the time. And so we get off the bus, and I'm, I'm looking at the waves, and I was like, you baptize people here? I mean, this looks kind of rough. And he's like, oh, yeah, we do it all the time. He's like, we do it all the time. It's no problem. So I was like, all right. So I baptized six of our students in the Pacific uh, ocean. It was the most exhausting baptism I've ever been a part of. I mean, it was like fighting through waves. And I mean, you guys, have you been to the beach, you know, when the waves are big and they're crashing over us and it was like you had to get out past the breakers and stuff. And I'm dragging, some, some of the girls, especially were little, so I'm like dragging them and all, kind of losing them. They also gave us baptism robes, which we don't really do that in our tradition, but we did down there because we were, you know, when in Rome kind of thing. So these robes are catching the currents and, you know, we're getting swept all over the place. And it was beautiful. And it was crazy and it was messy and everything. We got back and we prayed over the commitments that these students were making. It was really quite sweet. And Marco, the same guy, takes me aside and he goes, Aaron, you are so brave. And I said, what are you talking about? So he said, to go out there and that. I was like, you told me to go out there in that. You said you do this all the time. He said, we do this all the time. We don't go out in it. We just like, we get kind of wet on the edge. We don't go like, that was crazy. You are like looking for your people. Where's my sheep? You lost it. That was awesome. I was like, wow. So we've done some extreme baptisms, but I don't know if we have this, the December one ready to go. Hey, I want to give one other quick plug too. We mentioned about the Feed My Starving Children, the food pack that's coming up. Such a great event. I know many of you have done it. It's been a huge blessing. We do have a lot of spaces that are still open. So I know some of you are saying, oh yeah, we have been meaning to do that. Now is the time. We really want to put the big push on because the event is coming up. And just as an encouragement, like just a little snapshot from our neck of the woods, we invited our neighbors Historically, And the first time we invited our neighbors to do that, it was kind of like, what are you asking me to do? You know, it's like, you just, like, you just don't know kind of what people are asking you to do all the time. And then over the, the couple of times we've done it, some of our neighbors have participated. This year, when we told them that the event was coming, first of all, some of our neighbors were like, we heard this is coming and we want to do it. And then others, when we gave them a little flyer, they literally were like cheering and saying, we're going to have a team from our street. This is going to be so great. We're going to get our neighbor. So people are excited to do this. It's a great opportunity for you just to build relationships, especially with people that are in your life that maybe haven't come to church, don't know Jesus or whatever. Great, great opportunity. And so we want to encourage you to do that. Uh, sign up today. Our, stuff, our staff will be connecting with you in the, in the lobby. And uh, we'll, let's, let's get a big chunk of those uh, teams and slots filled up. Okay. So today, as we continue with our series, Draw Near, this is all about worship, and we're in the book of Hebrews. Today we're going to look in Hebrews 7 and 8 as a starting place, so you can flip over there. 
the, the concept that we're trying to get to is that God would elevate our understanding. And specifically today, we're taking another sort of baby step toward like better understanding of what does it mean when we talk about coming into the presence of God in worship. What does it mean that we have the privilege of drawing near to Him in worship? And that is not just a corporate experience. That's a personal experience, and it also happens on a corporate level as well. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, but today we really just, we're asking God, just increase our understanding. Help us take another step forward. Interestingly, it's the, it's the author of Hebrews who says, some of you should be teachers by now, but you're not ready for solid food. And so there's some fundamental things that we want to unpack because we don't want that to be true of you. We want you to be ready for solid food, not stuck on milk uh, like a little child. Childish understanding of the Bible, while cute, is not the goal. Uh, and I was, I was reading some things about different things that kids learned in their Sunday school class. And kids just, cra- I just love, I love hearing what God is teaching kids and stuff like that, especially when they're still working to grasp it a little bit. So one kid says this. He said, I learned that Joshua led the Hebrews in the, ba- the battle of Jeritol. So I was like, well, almost. You're getting it. I learned that Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. <laughs> That's cute. Not quite right. Uh, I love this one. that I learned Christians should have only one spouse, and that is called monotony. <laughs> Noah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to leave that one alone. Uh, Jesus was a great man. He healed a lot of leopards. That was kind of cute as well. And this one may be pertinent for our message today, that, uh, that Moses went up on Mount Sinai uh, where he got the Ten Amendments, you know, almost, getting, getting close. So a childish understanding, that's not the goal. We want, we want to take you deeper. We want you to grow in your understanding. And specifically, when we talk about worship, like what are we actually doing? Like, what is this thing all about? You come to a service like this. What are you doing here? What are we doing here? Why do we do any of this? So last week, we had talked a little bit, kicking off the series, let us draw near, we're gonna draw near to the throne of grace so that we can receive grace and help in our time of need. That's Hebrews 4.16. I think that picture Uh, is a great place for us to start in this notion of drawing near to the presence of God. And we talked last week, just real quick review, we talked about a worship encounter that is invitational, foundational, interactive, transformational, non-prescriptive, and just to give a real uh, brief review of that, I I love this quote from Augustine where he says, "You, you never go away from us, yet we have difficulty in returning to you. Come, Lord, stir us up, call us back, Kindle and seize us. Be our fire and our sweetness. And he says, let us love, let us run. I love that. Just honest assessment of the human heart, but this invitation when we come to draw near to the throne of grace. So that's an open invitation. Every time, every day when you wake up in the morning, you have an open invitation because of the finished work of Jesus to come into the presence of God. That's absolutely huge. And if nothing else should move us. It's foundational. Is this what becoming a Christian actually means? Is there a relationship with Jesus apart from worship? I would say no. You were designed to worship. 
And the fulfillment of that design is met exclusively in the finished work of Christ that calls us into a relationship with God. That's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't matter that you can't sing. It doesn't matter that you're not musical. That's why we don't define worship as simply a musical experience. That's too shallow a definition. But it's foundational. Uh, It's interactive. The goal of worship is not to put one's head in the sand and simply escape the daily problems of our world, but we are literally receiving from God himself. And we're getting what we need to be salt in light. That's not a bad deal. In fact, it's, it's just, again, one of those things that if we can get our minds around that, that you came in today to approach the throne of grace so that you could receive. And that in receiving, you would be made whole and that you would be made strong and that you would be made effective, that God would actually have permission to rearrange some things in your heart and your life. These are beautiful interactions. It's transformational. A short quote from John Ortberg, he says, I need to worship because my natural tendency is towards self-reliance and stubborn independence. There's just something about the posture of worship that we're we're re imagining and re-understanding relearning who we are and who God is and what the proper kind of posture looks like with him it's transformational Uh, and non-prescriptive we mentioned this last week that God is not limited to the size of your intellect uh, though some of us meet him in a more intellectual way that God does not change to the shape of your emotion though some of us kind of start with the heart as we come into the presence of God God is so gracious when we come to him with matters of the heart and matters of the head. But we're learning to worship. Now here's a question I'd like to begin with today. Does worship of an unchanging God uh, ever change? Is it different? One season to another, one day to another. One covenant to another. If I'll give you a little bit of a clue from Hebrews. Today's message, we're going to talk about this concept. What does it mean to be worshipers under the new covenant of Christ? If you have your Bibles, I want you just to look at Hebrews 7 because the book of Hebrews actually talks about this concept a lot that we are not under the old covenant, that we are worshipers under the new covenant, that when we're called to draw near to the throne of grace, we're called to draw near under the new covenant And yet, it's a word that a lot of us, we don't use that on a regular basis. And so if we don't have an understanding of covenant, we are not going to get what it means to be a worshiper under the new covenant of Christ. So let me read just a couple verses to you. Hebrews 7, uh, which talks, this section actually begins by talking about if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood and the law given to the people established in that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? And he's talking in reference to Jesus. And then specifically says this, verse 18 of Hebrews 7, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, parenthetically, for the law made nothing perfect. And then it says, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. So that's just kind of a a, a theme that the old priesthood, the old covenant being set aside under the new covenant in Christ and not being just set aside, but being fulfilled and established in him. So then in Hebrews 8, we're going to read a little longer passage here. It says the main point of what we're saying is this. 
we do have such a high priest. So he says, I want to talk about this high priest. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy of the shadow uh, that is in heaven. He's talking about Moses for a while, and, and, and this is why we, this was happening at the Mount. We're actually going to go there today uh, in, our, in our teaching. And then it says, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, then no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault in the, with the people, and this is what he said. This is where I want to pick up in verse 8 of chapter 8 in Hebrews. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel... And with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So it's a simple answer to the question, does worship of an unchanging God change? The answer is yes. This is the covenant, verse 10, I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, I will remember their sins no more. And then look at verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. God have blessing to the reading of his word. Obsolete is a harsh word, <laughs> right? Um, but I want you to focus on this for a moment just to answer that question. The, the worship that you give today is under the new covenant of God. That's, that's kind of the message. And I want to un unpack the implications of that for you by looking with you at what was old and what God did, what we learn from that. It's interesting because Paul actually says in Romans 7, the law that he, the author of Hebrews says, that the law doesn't, doesn't change your heart. But he says, I'm glad for the law because it showed me my shortcoming. It showed me the places in which I was falling short. It just didn't fix me. It couldn't correct the maladies of my heart. And he goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, but thanks be to God, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is new covenant thinking. So you are not under condemnation today if you are in Christ, if you are a new covenant worshiper. Now this word obsolete, this is a little bit of a, it's a, little bit of a harsh word. None of us want to be obsolete. And yet we have found things even in our own lifetimes that we would say we just simply don't do that or don't need that anymore especially in the realm of technology, communication, there are certain things that we used to do that we don't do. I'll just ask you to think about it this way. When's the last time that you used a payphone? Anybody use a payphone recently? I'd be, I'd be very curious to know if you have. Payphones used to be a thing. I mean, it used to be a deal where you were driving along and you would say, I need to stop and find a payphone to check in with somebody who's waiting for me to tell them I'm going to be late or so I'm going to be early or whatever. But it was actually, you pull your car over and you put quarters in the machine and you dial a number that hopefully you, had, you remember. How many of you know your friend's phone numbers? You talk about, you know, something, you used to have to do that. You know, now I just say call so-and-so or whatever. My smartphone knows it. Anyway, I'm just making the point that there are certain things that have become obsolete. I remember even our high school had a, had a payphone. 
so that after like a volleyball practice, we would go like call our parents to pick us up or whatever. And in fact, some of my friends who were less honest than me, they would do the collect call thing. When's the last time you made a collect call, right? You do the collect call thing, but what you do is, so, so some of you are young, you don't even know what this is. You would, you would call an operator and then you would like reverse the charges so that the person that you were making the call to would have to pay for it. So instead of you didn't have a quarter to put in the pay, that was another thing. It's hard to explain, it sounds, anyway. Uh, but you would, you would call and they would say, please give the name of the person and then the person on the other end would have to make up, the, make up their mind whether they would receive those charges. So that's how the whole collect call thing worked. And so what you would do is you would call, do a collect call and they say, please say the name so you can tell the person. And when it, the, the thing beeped, you would say, mom, come get me from practice real quick because we're done. You know, so then they would get a, a phone call that would say, will you receive a call from, mom, come get me from practice because we're done. And they would say no, and they would hang it up, and then nobody had to pay. See, like you work the system. See what I mean? You work the system that is now completely obsolete. We don't do that anymore. There's a lot of things that just because they've, we've, we've gotten better, you know, I think when turn-by-turn navigation became a thing and our phones got smart enough, marriages were saved all over the place. Because you used to have to have a map and you'd have to figure out where you're going and you'd write down directions or then you'd print out directions and then you would miss one turn and your uh, directions were worthless. And you just had the next two hours to argue with your spouse about whose fault it was that now we don't know where we are. And now we have technology that just says, eh, you're fine, it just, we'll just reroute you. It's good, you're rerouted. Um, you've seen things in your life there's probably many examples of things that you would look at now you just say that's obsolete we just don't do that we don't need that anymore what I'd like to do with you today is I want to I want you to consider some of this and we're going to look at these these concepts of like what has stayed the same what has changed what has become obsolete when we look at this notion of the old covenant and the new with the understanding that if you are in Christ today and you've made a commitment to him when you worship you are worshiping under the banner of of the new covenant. And it's really important that we understand and get this. So l- let's talk about what is he referencing when he's talking about uh, Moses and what he got and all that kind of stuff. So Moses, when you read in Exodus chapter three, um, Moses was called by God to free the people from slavery in Egypt. So God said, I've heard the cry of my people hundreds of years that they've been enslaved, and so I'm sending you, Moses, to go in and to lead them out of slavery. And specifically, the call was that Moses was going to lead them to that, back to that very spot where they would worship him. In fact, when he goes to Pharaoh, he says, you've got to let God's people go so that they can go out and worship. It was a call to worship out of slavery and into worship. So then we see these things in the history of God's people and even in the Old Covenant that we go, wait a second, that sounds kind of like my life because I had to be set free from slavery, brought into a relationship with God so that I have proper and restored worship. Psalm 40 talks about that, right? I, I looked to the, I, I, I called out to the Lord. He looked to me. He heard my cry. Uh, he pulled me out of the mud and the mire, out of the slimy pit. He put my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song of praise in my mouth. Many will see and fear and put their trust in, in God. Like this is an old covenant, old testament kind of foreshadowing of what God is going to do to make you a worshiper to bring you into a right relationship. So Moses is leading the people out of slavery and into worship. So we see a little pattern there. 
After the plagues and the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, God's people are brought to Sinai and invited into a covenant relationship with God. Now, a covenant relationship, we have to understand this. This is a treaty of agreement between two parties with very clear protocols and expectations. It usually gets ratified in a special ceremony. And, so, and there's usually a meal involved. So this is the Mosaic Covenant, and it is part of God's covenantal language that Hebrews is referring to when it talks about the Old Covenant. Now just to make sure that you're aware of this, there's several related covenants in the Old Testament where we read about covenants with Noah, covenants with Abraham, covenants with Moses, covenants with Israel, uh, covenants with David, uh, and then this foreshadowing of a new covenant that's going to come. So Jeremiah talks about things like, I'm going to write their law, my law, God says, I'm going to write my law on their hearts and on their minds. That's referenced in Hebrews we just read. Uh, Ezekiel says, uh, I'm going to take out this heart of stone and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. So there's going to be this much more interactive kind of thing, but I'm, I'm going to actually do something on the inside of people that is transformational and changing. That's the new covenant to come. And probably for the people back in the Old Covenant days and Old Testament days, they probably would say, I don't really know what that means. We have a much better view of that on this side of the cross. Okay, so um, this is a quote from Rory Noland, who wrote a book called Transformational Worship. And I read this book several times now. Um, and over the last year, it's been a theme that I, I, has kind of inspired some of this series in some of his writing um, that he has, has brought. So this, this is just a thing that he observes about Sinai. He says that though Israel emerged from slavery as a ragtag tribe without a cogent religious identity and with no compelling vision for worship, they left Sinai for the promised land as a covenant community and as a worshiping community. Now, historically, that's actually really important for us because there was a time when God's people were not a covenant people and were not a worshiping people. And yet we can see as we trace their history how God was bringing things to life in them. Now I want, I want you just to look at some of these old covenant things and then we're gonna begin to do a little bit of comparing. Notice that God initiates the meeting with his people. Just know, If you're taking notes, just jot that down. God initiates the meeting with his people. And that's significant for us today because when we come together, what are we doing? We're listening for the voice of God calling us in. That's why we, we ask you, we say, listen, listen to these scriptures, listen to these psalms, listening, listen to the word of God as you're coming in together to this thing that we call corporate worship. So God initiates the meeting. Number two, we see that there's a nature of worship that is dialogical. So people are not just hearing, not just receiving, but they're actually responding to. And you probably know this to be the case, that like sitting through church services, that's like every child's kind of pretty rough patch, like are we almost done? You know, there's something about being in a non-engaging kind of environment that's just like, it's very life-draining. I remember actually being in a, in a service uh, years and years ago. Amy and I were in this service. We were leading a, a mission trip, and uh, we went to this church we were visiting, and the guy gets up and he says, I've got a 14-point message for you today. 
And it was like 14 long points. And then he was like, hey, but I heard we have some American English-speaking people here, so we're just going to throw a translator in. To which I was like, whoa, we just doubled the length of this message. Amy was feeling sick, so she's like passed out on the seat or whatever. She would wake up occasionally, and I'd be like, we're only on point eight, sorry. You know, it's like, whoa. You know, we've all been in that situation, right, where, you know, you're kind of just kind of getting through. But that's not a new covenant picture of worship. In fact, it was not even an old covenant picture of worship. Getting through. It was dialogical. It was hearing the voice of God. It was responding to him. Oftentimes, God's people called to say, we're going to obey the things that we're hearing. So that notion of dialogical, very important. Uh, the third one is that there's a proclamation of who God is and what God has done. We still do that. Even today, in the songs that we sing, we're making a proclamation of who God is and what God has done. We see that worship was a living out of the covenantal relationship between God's people and him. So we're trying to live this thing out. And then finally, the, the people are reenacting God's saving work for redemption. So the example that are called to remember many things, one of them is Passover. And again, this is where I hope as we go through this series that you can start to kind of connect the dots with the greater arc of Scripture. So the people of God in the Old Covenant, they're called to remember Passover. Jesus in the New Testament says with his disciples, he says, I want to celebrate Passover with you. This is days before he goes to the cross, right? Hours at this point. And so he gets them together to celebrate this Old Covenant thing, and then he says to them, every time you get together, I want you to remember this, not as the Passover meal from the Old Covenant, but in a new covenant thing, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. And when you begin to kind of connect the dots from what God has done in the Old to what God is calling us to in the New, it's really quite beautiful. So the people are reenacting God's saving work of redemption. So that would be one example. This encounter with God was transformative. And we've already used that word a couple of times. We said it last week as well. The goal of coming into the presence of God is not appeasement, it's not due diligence, but it's actually to say that in the presence of God that we are actually transformed. We're actually being changed to be made more like him. So I, I wanna give you just a few things. When I think about Old Covenant, New Covenant, and when we read Hebrews desiring to grasp a, a biblical view of worship, we can ask these few questions. What has stayed the same from the Old Covenant to the New? What has changed from the Old Covenant to the New? And then finally, what has been made obsolete by the New? So I, I just wanna take us through this for a few moments and then give you some, some response time to that as well. So wh what has stayed the same? When we talk about Old Covenant to New Covenant, well, the character of God has not changed. Who he is and his person, his desires, the character of God has not changed. God's plan of salvation has not changed. His invitation to worship has not changed. In fact, what we start to see is that the arc of Scripture shows us the brokenness of humanity all the way back to Genesis, in which our proximity to God has been altered by sin and corrected through his covenant. So much of this notion, the reason we're calling this, this series Draw Near, is that when we're talking about worship, we're talking about your heart's proximity to God. And some of you are living far from God right now. Some of you, God feels distant. God feels maybe he's forgotten. Maybe I'm not even sure how to hear the voice of God. 
It's a proximity issue, metaphorically speaking. But the beauty of new covenant worship is that the invitation is still there. That the proximity to God has been altered by sin and is still being altered by sin and yet is being corrected through his covenant. These are things like the sacrifice of atonement. This is not a new thing. You see it in the old and the new. There is an at-one-ment. When you use that word atonement, it's a bringing back together the things that have been separated. At-one-ment is one way to think of it in layman's terms. Brings us back to oneness with God. There is a restoration of relationship. There is a confession and repentance. Old, old covenant, new covenant. We see these things. Now, I want to do a little exercise with you. Um, just take 30 seconds and do business with this prayer. Okay, this is the prayer. God, is there anything in my heart or my life that I need to do business with you in a corrective kind of way? Right? So a thought that's just kind of out of place, an action that, eh, I, probably, I wish I could kind of get that back, a word that hasn't reflected the heart of Christ very well, etc. Just do business with that for just, just 30 seconds. Ask the Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life that I would do business, you would want to do business with me in a corrective kind of way. 30 seconds, your time. So I kind of sense this in the first service, and I kind of sense it now too. Some of us, I think, are um, actually just enjoying a little silence, right? You're going, this is good just to be quiet, just to be still for a moment. And God oftentimes meets us in, in moments of stillness, even when we're doing heart business with the Lord. Some of you would say, hey, I'd, I'd take another few minutes of that. Well, you can have it after the service. Now, here's, here's the re reason I asked you to do that. Um, because we are family um, and because we're in process, I'm just going to ask you to respond in this way. If, there was, if, if you had one thing even that you were like, oh, God sort of spoke to me on that, just raise a hand real quick. Da, 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 da. You can just look around. There's lots of hands being raised. Okay. reason I do that is I'm asking you to do that is two things. Number one, um, God does speak to you. Right? The transformation that comes in when we're willing to start being a little authentic is good. But there's another thing at play here. Most of us feel uncomfortable even to say, eh, I'm still in process. And that's actually a major impediment to authentic worship. Because the new covenant, God dwelling here, means that we need to learn to be good dwelling places for God means that we need to be authentic and real about the fact that we're still in process. And there's something really interesting how we're drawn in worship that we want to have kind of a good face forward. So when we have to deal with kind of the authentic heart stuff, it's like, Ooh, you know, just like the gut reaction, especially with the old nature, is to defend itself or to hide. And so I want to just acknowledge a couple of things. Number one, confession and repentance are a beautiful opportunity of new covenant worship. And the means by which God leads us into that and through those processes 
are infinitely better, so much that the old thing is obsolete. And if you're wondering, like, well, what's obsolete? Well, I'm guessing none of you brought wildlife with you uh, to worship today. Doves, a heifer, a sacrificial lamb. And I'm glad that you didn't. We're all glad that you didn't. Because confession and repentance had a very different sort of flavor and it was addressed in a very different kind of way. Now we have the, the thing, it hasn't changed. Confession and repentance is still there, but the way it happens changes. Now, I, I've kind of come to learn that that prayer uh, of just God, is there anything I need to do business with? Anything in my heart I need? <laughs> the interesting thing is, I think I've always heard from God when I've asked him on that. Which you might be saying, well, that is a real, <laughs> that's a real, uh, shows a little bit of the condition of your heart. And yet it probably does. So authentic worship actually says, God, you can tend to the matters of my heart. Now, what, what has changed? Well, what has changed is, old covenant to new covenant, the basis of all of these things that we've just talked about that have stayed the same, they've taken on new meaning in the person, in the work of Christ. So the sacrifice that we talk about is not provided by us. We didn't bring animals with us for a blood sacrifice before holy God to cover over our sin. We didn't do that because the finished work of Christ is enough. Interestingly, Psalm 51 says, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit and you will not reject a broken spirit and repentant heart, oh God. You see, the basis of all of these things have changed. The sacrifice is not provided by us, but by the high priest himself. The restoration of relationship is based on his finished work. Confession and repentance that we just talked about a few moments ago, they flow out of Christ's restoration and healing power. And it actually becomes a beautiful inroads to the presence of God. I was speaking years ago to, to a young woman who actually happened to be part of our campus ministry, and I knew that she was a, a leader uh, with us, and we got to know her, and just, just a great leader and everything. So when I was hearing her testimony after she had graduated, I said, well, I actually don't really know when you came to faith in Christ. And she said, I actually came to faith in Christ at the campus ministry under your leadership. I said, you gotta tell me about this. I didn't know about it. She goes, well, I grew up in church and I went through the motions of worship all of my life, but it actually wasn't until my, my college years that I began to really focus in and, and what God ended up doing was I realized I didn't have a relationship with him and he brought me into a place, and these were her words. She said, he brought me to a place of sweet repentance. You know, I think one of the things in the spirit of worship is we've gotta get comfortable with confession and repentance. Because that's what we're talking about, authenticity. That's what we're talking about. Like, we shouldn't be ashamed to say, my old nature's still alive at well. I'm not celebrating my sin, but I'm really glad that God has an alternative and that the finished work of Jesus is enough. So those things have changed. What else hasn't changed? Our or what, what else has changed? Our place in history and this side of the cross is a change. Uh, what else has changed? The concept of temple from old covenant to new covenant so that literally what we read in Hebrews is you are the temple. You are the place where God's presence will 
dwell. You don't have to go to the place. You don't have to make a pilgrimage. You don't have to come at this time uh, or this date. This is a beautiful uh, worship kind of thing. Uh, The definition of God's people has changed from old covenant to new. That no longer is the definition of God's people a specific geography and a specific race but rather that God is now calling to himself from all tribes and all tongues. This beautiful picture in in Revelation that talks about all tribes and all tongues gathering together, and what are they doing when they're gathered together? They're worshipers. The people of God is now a much broader term. And in the New Covenant, we see this focus from the outward to the inward. I'm going to just give one more. I've kind of leaned into that a little bit. Let me give you one more just interesting kind of comment. I was talking with our staff about this message. We're talking about Old Covenant, New Covenant. And one of our staff members said, you know, the best example of Old Covenant kind of lived out to the T was the Pharisees. Like, they got it. They understood the rules, the regulation, They had the outward appearance, and yet they were the recipients of the harshest criticism of the Son of God. He said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs, and you look pretty on the outside, and on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're a a pit of vipers. Jesus said things like this. He said, you go the whole world over to get one proselyte, and then you make him twice the son of hell that you are. I mean, these were harsh criticisms from Jesus to the religious elite of the day. Wow. And I think that's why the author of Hebrews is saying, God didn't, Jesus didn't die to make you a better Pharisee. It's also interesting when you read things like the Galatians 5, uh, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So don't be yoked any longer by a yoke of slavery. And I thought that that always was in reference to my sin. You know, the stuff I screwed up and oh, I have bad habits or whatever. So I, and I think it can, but Galatians is actually written to people to say, stop trying to be so religious. The freedom is actually a freedom from a religious spirit because God did not call you to be a worshiper and make you a better Pharisee. Fascinating. Um... All right, let me just do one other, one other point with you real quick, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. You know, I, I, thinking about Old Covenant and New Covenant, um, for a long time, I, I sort of heard people referring to God as almost like a switched personality. You know, Old Covenant God, wrathful, blood sacrifice, you know, all that kind of stuff. New Covenant God, New Testament God, fun, loving, real good guy. So this guy probably don't, eh, this went, oh, you know, not really. And that's a total misnomer. That's not what it is at all. The reason that people say that is that we recoil at the notion of the old covenant blood sacrifice. It's gross. It's, it's, it, it's a literal, there's a recoiling in us. There's nothing about it that is, that is pleasant. And so you might misunderstand that by saying, well, God just, I guess, loved, you know, he was a wrathful God who had to be appeased. And it's actually not correct at all. The, the recoiling of the blood sacrifice of the old covenant is a commentary on the brokenness of your sin, not on the desire of God. That's why the psalmist said, the, 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 that sacrifice you didn't desire, 
but you desired a broken and repentant heart. So it's the ugliness of the blood sacrifice that actually reflects the ugliness of my sin, which is dealt with in the new covenant through the finished work of Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness of the, for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And you are a new covenant worshiper if you are in Christ today. So let me just give you just a couple real quick points. What does this mean? Okay, so I'm a new covenant worshiper. We're not under the old covenant. We don't do animal sacrifice and all of that. Jesus' finished work is enough. So what does that mean in a practical way? Well, it means that as new covenant people, if you are in Christ today, and if you're not, today may be the day that you need to say, I need to bow my knee to the Lordship of Christ. I need to confess my sin that has kept me from him because my proximity from God is what worship changes. And when I come into a relationship with God, that, that proximity is changed. So personal worship and corporate worship. God is literally a prayer away. I deeply desire for you to know that. That before you got out of bed this morning, if you are in Christ, that the, the proximity to God, you don't have to get out of bed, you don't have to come here, that God is literally a prayer away. And that makes a difference in the way that you go through your day-to-day things. What does it also mean? We are new covenant people. The dwelling place of God is now with us. That's why the temple veil was torn when Jesus died on the cross, top to bottom. And I mean, the, the presence of God is no longer stuck away in the Holy of Holies. We are the temple of God. So what kind of dwelling place are you for the King of kings and Lord of lords? When he's talking about writing his law on your heart and on your mind, he's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you have in Christ. What else does it mean that we're new covenant people? Well, we celebrate authenticity rather than surface image. And I think I leaned into that enough, but be authentic in your worship. Have the courage, at least with somebody else, to say, here's where I'm not getting it right. Here's where I'm struggling. And then in our worship experience, iron actually does sharpen iron. It's good. So we celebrate authenticity rather than surface image. Uh, We live lives to reflect God's glory. In our work, in our relationships, in our generosity, in our pursuit of purity, in our serving, we live lives to reflect God's glory. And and finally, I would say we, we, as new covenant people, we anticipate a future hope which is actually really good news because most of our worship experience right now is in this in-between. You know, we're between the cross and the second coming of Christ and we're still fighting spiritual battles. We're still dealing with the old nature. All of that is very much a part of this experience, but we're living that out with the anticipation of a future hope that will come. And we're being transformed day by day and bit by bit. So my question I wanna just leave you with is this. If God is with me, then what? Then what? If that's your reality, right? I mean, if, if the new covenant means that you're only prayer away, God is with you, you're here, and you're in right standing because of the finished work of Jesus, then what would he have you live out? Well, how does that change your work decisions? How does that change your relationship, your generosity, your pursuit of purity, your serving? How do you become a living testimony 
for God's glory. That's what we're talking about when we talk about being worshipers in the new covenant. And it's diverse, and it's beautiful, and it's profound, and it's challenging, and it's hard, and it's beautiful, and that's what we want for you. And I think that's what God wants for us. So we're going to pray. I'm going to ask you to stand up, if you would. Draw near to the throne of grace that you might receive grace and help in your time of need. You can even open your hands if you want to receive. Jesus, we're grateful today. We have a high priest who understands. We have a high priest who was tempted in every way but was without sin. We have a high priest who was the sacrifice for us. So God, I pray that we might embrace a new covenant worship identity. Thank you, God, that even now you're inviting us in. Thank you, God, that you have given us a pathway that actually changes us. That actually changes us. And God, if there's places that our hearts have been resistant to change or maybe we've just not been quite ready to to do some business with you, I pray maybe today's that day just to greater humility, greater work of the Spirit. I'm going to talk next week about, Lord, give us soft hearts that, that we, don't, we don't shut down when we hear the voice of God, but we lean in and we respond with obedience. Maybe today we just need some space on the mercy seat. Say, God, would you meet me here? Draw near. It's a great privilege. So, Lord, I pray that the attitude of our hearts would be primarily one of gratitude, that we would be able to say, God, thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for all of the distance that you have closed to bring us in. We pray that we would reflect you well in these days, that we would be a signpost that points to Christ in all that we do. And if there's one small step that you need us to take today, God, one, one adjustment of the heart, one adjustment of the life, help us to have courage to say yes to it. We love you, and we thank you for the new covenant in Christ. In Jesus' name.